All right, let's begin class. We are in Acts 13. I'll start us with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for the boldness of the apostles who you called and sent to proclaim the gospel everywhere they went. May we have that same boldness as we are called to proclaim the truth of the gospel and the facts and the truths of what you've done. We pray that today in class, our minds would be clear, the word of God would be clear to us, and that we would learn and grow and be able to encourage one another in the faith. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we are in Acts 13, and I was on verse 28 last time. Uh, Eric, if you do, you want to read Acts thirteen twenty-eight to thirty-two. Yeah, you know, I'll read it right off the sheet here. Let's see here. This is on. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. Amen. I remember when I was in Bible college in the early uh, 1970s, and uh, one of the things I took a course on the book of Acts, one of the things we learned was that every single sermon or evangelistic message or whatever was preached in Acts, every last one contained a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every last one. And so the conclusion that I came to, and our teacher certainly encouraged us to come to, was that if you don't preach about the person and work of Christ, and particularly his resurrection, you really haven't proclaimed the gospel the way it needs to be proclaimed according to the word of God. Now, the reason the resurrection was so essential is that it's not unusual for somebody to be martyred in the ancient world for their faith. Okay? There have been many Jews that were killed for one reason or another by various people. Uh, and uh, like I mentioned in a sermon, Alexander Janus had all these Jewish men crucified and uh, out on, on a road with their wives and children having to watch it as they slowly died. And so there was a lot of cruelty and there was a lot of people who were Jewish who had been killed for, for their Jewish faith. That still goes on, by the way. But what was unique about Christ, there's various things that are unique, but the one that was apparent was that he wasn't just martyred but, got, but he had predicted his own resurrection and was indeed raised from the dead. So the resurrection was proof that all of his other claims 
were also true. Because nobody could just concoct a resurrection without an awful lot of help from co-conspirators. But then he couldn't spend 40 days going around appearing to 500 witnesses. Okay? So why is the resurrection so important? Well, it's, it's the key miracle because from there you can prove all the other things are to be believed that you find in Luke Acts. And so that he is the promised Messiah, that he was innocent, that he was the Jewish Messiah, and that he came to bring salvation to all who believe. So it said here, though, they found no ground for putting him to death. So one of the claims in Luke Acts is that Jesus was innocent and that even those who examined him knew that he was innocent, that there was no real reason for him to be executed. So, uh, Norm, could you look up uh, Acts 23? Excuse me. Uh, yeah, Acts 23 and verse 4. Hopefully that's a valid, <laughs> the one we're looking for. Acts 23, oh, I'm sorry. Our, uh, our, uh, our trained person with the mic is in a part of the state that's probably under eight feet of snow right now. Okay, Acts 23, verse 4. But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? Well, how, I had the wrong. <laughs> okay, that one's on me. I don't know why I had that there. If probably I meant Luke. I got Luke 23, 21. In fact, let's just go to Luke 23 and read the whole thing. <laughs> I, need to, I need to do a better job of uh, proofreading my own PowerPoint before I put it out here. I did this so many, so many weeks ago. I've been, I preached three t- different times. Plus, there was a snow day, and so this goes back like a month. That's my excuse. I'm sticking to it. I think it's Luke 23. Yeah, we want Luke, not Acts. Exactly. Yeah, we wanted to go to yeah, Luke. Luke. Luke 23, 4 says, and Pilate said to the chief priests and the multitudes. I find no guilt in this man. All right. So write uh, verse, wrong book. So Pilate said, I found no guilt in him. But then they weren't satisfied with that answer. There was an emotional, angry response. Let me just read this whole section of 22 through 25. And a third time he said to them, why? What has this man done wrong? I found nothing, found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. But they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified and their voices won out. In other words, this was a mob action. Verse 24, Pilate decided to grant their demand and release the one they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder, but he handed Jesus over to their will. So they got Barabbas, 
the true guilty one, released, and they got Messiah, the sinless one, crucified. So the claim that Paul made in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch was that there was no ground. There was no reason for the execution of Jesus Christ. And uh, one of the things that is thematic in Luke Acts, and I have this on my slide here, is that God himself is carrying forward his plan of messianic salvation through all these things that happen. One doctrine that Christians need to learn is the doctrine of compatibilism. That human freedom, circumscribed as it is, and God's divine purpose are compatible. They're doing what they want to do, but in the process of doing so, God's eternal plan is coming to pass on the face of the earth. There's such a thing as divine necessity. It was necessary that that one person die. Now, I have a bunch of verses here. Um, Eric, if you could... Again, I hope these are right. I'll look 443. Sure. And then... Luke 9.22, if you could get those two. Sure. And Dan, if you could do Luke 13.33. Brian, Luke 17.24. And Norm again. Let's have Cladoris this time. Luke 22.37. We'll, we'll do that, and then we'll go into Luke 24. Okay, so we want 443. It says, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And then it goes on to say, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Yeah, I must. Must. I'm looking for this word day in the Greek. Yeah. And um, uh, delta, epsilon, iota. That word is used in Luke Acts and actually elsewhere in the New Testament to denote the divine necessity. God's purpose is happening. So that Jesus must, when he uses that term day, then God's purpose is behind it. That's what Luke is telling us. He needed to do this. And it's necessary that Messiah came first to his own people, but also to the others. Now, what was Luke 9.22? 9.22 It says, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. All right. That's a key one. There we have day, must. 920, Luke 922. Now, notice he must suffer many things. Oh, I'm sorry. I got too short of a cable for you there, Dan. Um, don't forget that one okay it says the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected now let's just stop right there and learn theology notice it says 
Luke 9.22, he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. Was it a sin for the elders and uh, the chief priests and the scribes, the ones who had authority, the ones who had learning, the ones who knew the scriptures, the ones who knew the promises, was it a sin for them to reject their own Messiah? We're all saying yes. But here it says, Jesus said, this must happen. Okay, there's our doctrine of compatibilism. Is that the term you would use, Harry? Okay, that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are compatible. Why must the Messiah be rejected? Well, for one thing, it's predicted in Isaiah. Okay? And he was despised, rejected of men. And had Messiah not been rejected, this plan that I've been preaching about in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, that's called a mystery that's now revealed that God intended to save Jews and Gentiles and to make this one new man and that he would build the church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus, the chief cornerstone. This is God's plan now revealed. So on the scene of history, all these people are doing what they want to do. They had every chance to not reject Messiah. Pilate didn't want to do it. And uh, they could ex- they want somebody executed or let it be Barabbas. But they wanted it. They, they, their emotions said, crucify him, crucify him, with a loud voice. And they did exactly what they wanted to do. But God is using that to bring salvation. Now, as we've already read Acts, we see that their rejection wasn't necessarily even the last of the story for any individual person. Because when Stephen preached the gospel in Acts, Saul of Tarsus was one who was like this crowd. He was railing threats of slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. He rejected Messiah. He rejected what God said and what God was doing. And Stephen proved from Scripture that this was God's doing. And so we might think, well, that's the end for Saul of Tarsus. But it wasn't, was it? God converted him. Yes. Uh, Could you bring the mic over to Norm? So do you see a connection between the Jews rejecting Christ and the fact that there has been suffered persecution down through the centuries? Uh, I think the connection isn't so much with their rejecting him, but being the people through whom he came. Because the rejection is not forever. And what we're going to find... Thanks for asking that question, because that's commonly said, and it's actually used sometimes in a bad way. But if you read the whole story, Eric's our resident eschatology expert, by the way. (laughs) 
You wouldn't believe how easy it is to do radio with Eric if you do eschatology. Diane, I told Diane, all I do is turn the mic on, turn it on, start record, and ask him a question. Well, it says here and here and here, 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 here. And I'm, okay, okay. So that's, I appreciate that expertise. Because the rejection, which was predicted, and it is a morally culpable rejection, but because the promise to the fathers is still valid, according to Romans 11, there, why, why does everybody hate the Jews now? Okay, because if you took the idea that the rejection is never going to be remedied and they're never going to look upon him whom they pierced and they're never going to say, as Jesus said, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now this will never happen. Well, then why hate them? Because they don't have anything going for them. But there is going to be a remnant during Daniel's 70th week who will believe on him. And what's going to happen to them? Well, the rejection and anti-Semitism that's going on now is nothing compared to what will happen then. That's going to be the unleashing of all the hatred and evil in hell itself against the Jews. And if those days were not shortened, no life would be saved. But Messiah himself comes and saves the people who had rejected him. So the story's not over. Now the purpose that's revealed, this is the mystery now revealed, is that had this been different and Jerusalem became the headquarters of Messianic Christianity and the temple system continued to operate, there's no way the building being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets of Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, becoming the one new man. That's not happening. So the, the rejection had a purpose to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And it has an until. Until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Now, am I getting this right, Eric? Okay, what do you know? And so uh, the, the other day we were recording some radio. We were talking about this. Yes, uh, bring the mic over to Nancy. Oh, go ahead and then bring it over there. Back to his question, I'm wondering the, the hatred of the Jews now, where does that influence originate? Does it have anything to do with stoichia and, and the, the evil ones over nations? That I, I'm just wondering, where, is, where does that come from? Okay. Um, yes, there's a supernatural aspect to it and a political one. Let me explain both. The hatred of Satan against God's promises has gone on all the way back to the garden. Okay, and the attack, you know, you can read about it in the Old Testament, the, the warfare, the desire to destroy the promise of God. The promise was reiterated first to Eve, then Abraham, Genesis 12. 
Isaac, that the Isaac uh, incident, Genesis, is that 22, where he went up on the mount? And he said, God will provide. And then you have the whole story, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph episode, Judah, the time in Egypt, the raising up of Moses, the burning bush. Then you have Sinai. And then you have the conquest and ultimately a kingdom. And the promise is given to David that he would not lack a man to sit on the throne. And you have the Davidic Psalm 110. And then you have Joel, which we've looked at, and Jeremiah and Daniel. All of this is saying that God is still going to keep this promise. And what is being revealed now is what it really looks like during the church age. The amount of time between the ascension and then Pentecost, which is the birth of the church, uh, to the rapture is an indeterminate amount of time. And we've seen history for those 2,000 years plus go through an awful lot. And we can't read history and figure out when the rapture is going to happen. We've been talking about that on yet to be broadcast CIC podcast. Eric and I have been, I've got like a month's worth of those in the can that we're going to put out there. We've been just sitting and talking about this. We don't know how long it's going to go. And about the time you think the signs are pointing it's going to be right away, we're wrong. I got to admit, I was wrong. When I saw what happened in the 80s, I was sure the rapture was going to happen pretty soon. The European Union was a big deal. The desire to, you know, have this uh, conglomeration of nations. There were people pointing to that as fulfillment of prophecy. I didn't understand Matthew 24, uh, the chiastic structure, so I got that wrong. And I just kept looking at the signs thinking, well, it's going to be pretty soon. It's going to be pretty soon. It's going to be pretty soon. But then it goes the other way. And now you've got the opposite. Now everybody, or not everybody, but a lot of nations are saying, no, we want sovereign boundaries. There's a new nationalism that's happened. And um, we don't know how long. Now, I believe... Now that I really am getting a better handle on Ephesians, and I thank God for giving me enough health to preach Ephesians. It's, it's doing me a ton of good myself, and I'm hopefully helping the church. What is the point of Israel having rejected her Messiah? They asked Pilate to be executed, and then not wanting to hear this, trying to set up a Christianity headquartered in Jerusalem. Paul trying to stop that. That's why he ended up in jail because the the Christians didn't want what Paul had to offer. Okay, so he appeals to Rome. Why did it happen this way? Why did 70 AD happen? Why did 135 AD happen? Why was Jerusalem trodden underfoot by the Gentiles? Why did all this stuff going on? The whole time, as world history goes on, the entire time, 
every single time any person believes in the gospel from any country in any situation, God has put another brick in the new building, the one new man. He's populating the church with persons. God wants more people to be living, being born, hearing the word, and being added. We don't know how long that goes on. Now, I'm looking at what's going on. I I see things totally different than an awful lot of other people. I see, uh, for instance, this debate about carbon dioxide and the greenness of the earth and so on. I look at that and I think, well, carbon dioxide is going to make the earth more green. And if, for example, if, what happens if Greenland turns green again? Well, there's more food. There's more habitable, habitable land. More can be grown. That's already happening, by the way. We've had record wheat harvest year after year. It wasn't that long ago when I was a kid... They showed all the pictures of the starving masses to raise money to send where the children are starving. Now the number one problem is childhood obesity. The earth is growing more produce to feed more people now than it's ever had. That's just what's happening. That's part of providence. No, I'm not claiming, I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet. But the fact, I don't know what's going to happen, but with the internet, with communications, with travel, with more green, with more wheat, with more land mass that's habitable, what's happening is even if a few of the people that are going to live on the earth come to Christ, God's building up that building with souls that will be with us for eternity. That That part is revealed. I'm not claiming I know more about climate than somebody else, but we can see what is happening, which is more people are being born and fed and living. And if we can get the church to preach the gospel, more are being added to the kingdom. We know that's his purpose, but at some point, that's it. The rapture happens, and now it's Israel. Okay, uh, Nancy, you've been very patient. Do you remember what you wanted to say, I hope? No, go ahead. I'm on. There you are. Thank you. So you had asked a question about whether or not the elders and chief priests had sinned by turning Jesus over. Yes. yes. So I understand that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and it was the Lord's will So what is the answer to your question? Well, the answer is they were doing exactly what they wanted to do. And what they did was sinful. But in so doing, they were fulfilling God's purpose. But since that purpose was the rejection of Christ, which is ontologically a sinful act, they are morally culpable for doing it. And they can't say, it's not going to work at the judgment seat saying, well, you, you can't judge me because you were able to use what I did. They, well, they didn't, if they, 
No, go ahead and say that into the mic. Well, they couldn't have not turned Jesus over because it was his will. They didn't know that. They just knew they didn't want him. Right. It's like arguing about, uh, I'm not accusing you, but people say, well, what about the names in the book? Well, if they're already in there, what's the point? Or if they're going to be erased, somebody was emailing me about names getting erased. And I finally kept emailing back and I said, read the verse again. And the verse said, I will not erase your name <clears throat> if you overcome. So the, it, we don't know these things. All, any, if we're one of those persons and we're on the scene of history and Messiah is who he is and does what he does and says what he says, we're face to face with eternity. And like in John 6, when Jesus multiplied the bread, walked on the water, got into a debate, they murmured just like they did in the wilderness, and all these people were leaving because they didn't like his doctrine. And he asked the disciples if they're going to leave too. Peter said, where shall we go? You have the words of life. I think it's both end. We need to take moral stock of our own response to Christ. Is there ample evidence to prove who he is? There is. Then why am I not serving him if I'm not? Yes, Beth. From the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what to do. Is that, does that figure in at all to the guilt of the scribes and the uh, it doesn't were... remove their guilt, but it shows us the mercy of God. Okay, that's the purpose. Because another good example, in my opinion, are the two thieves on the cross. You know, uh, being crucified was a long, torturous event. One finally, at some point, said, "Remember me when you come into your kingdom," believing that he would, showed true faith. And Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. So here's when I first saw all this stuff about God's sovereignty in the 80s, it created a crisis for me. Because I've always been taught everything's about free will. And that's the only thing that matters. But then I kept studying and I realized, I remember when I had my free will, I, was, I hated Christians. And... Uh, I'm glad God had mercy on me and confronted me. Saul had his free will. He wanted the Christians dead. He saw the sovereign God who said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And there was a total change. Here's how I approach this since I'm trying to be faithful as a preacher. I want to preach to human beings where it's between the truth of the word and whoever's hearing it will you turn to Christ here's the evidence and, and make it by God's grace as clear and compelling as possible and if someone says they plug their ears I don't want to hear it I don't want to hear it I want to hear it I would rather serve the devil that's between them and God do you believe that? 
That's between them and God. I'm not going to say, oh, obviously your name's not in the book of life. I don't know that. I don't know that. What if they come to Christ at age 95? I don't know what God's going to do. But the purpose of God, let's, let's all turn together, and then I'll, I'll go to you, Christy. Let's all turn together in our Bibles to Matthew 18 and verse 7. Matthew 18 and verse 7. Let's look carefully at this verse. Matthew 18 and verse 7. Usually I stay in Luke X, but I want to look at it in Matthew 18. We're going to branch out. Let me read this. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. The, the Greek there is from which we get our word scandal. For it is inevitable, inevitable, that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Two things are stated. The, in fact, the word there is a synonym for day. It's a different word, but it means necessary. So your translation may have that. It's necessary that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the one through whom it comes. So those chief priests and scribes Woe to you, because Jesus said to them, Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Woe to you. Uh, in, in earlier Matthew chapter 10 and 11, remember the woes? You're, you're like children. We're playing a funeral and you're not mourning. We're playing wedding and you're not dancing. So we don't like you. And then Jesus issues the universal call. Come unto me, all you are weary laden. So it's necessary the Messiah be crucified, but woe to the one who did it. And whoever participates and say, I don't want him, I don't want him, I don't want him, we will not have this man rule over us, is ultimately and totally morally culpable. But the one, like the thief on the cross, who sees it, so remember me when you come into your kingdom. I deserve to die. He admitted his own guilt. He saw the innocence of Christ. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And I think we just need to preach always those options. And philosophically, if our mind wants to go into the eternal counsel of God, I, that doesn't bother me. I know some people are so bothered. I, if we have more people leave the church because they want us to preach, I'm thinking over 45 years that I've been preaching. It's not all been one church. If I don't hear free will, I'm going to go somewhere else. Okay. So I, I finally now I have this thing I send to people on the Internet. It's every verse in the whole New Testament with the word free from the Greek as an adjective as a noun and as a verb. Comprehensive list, every single verse. And I found that because, again, I got challenged because I'm supposed to preach free will. Well, show me that verse where I'm supposed to preach it. Well, they always give me one that teaches the moral will of God. And so that's Charles Finney's Pelagianism. 
God is not allowed because we tell him he's not. You can't command anything the man doesn't have the ability to do. So Gerald Finney said, we were going to talk about that, aren't we? Uh, so where did that principle come from? Can the moral God who rules the universe, is he circumscribed by man's philosophy? And we don't even believe that in human law. We, call, we hold people culpable all the time for things they had no control over. And I remember debating in seminary and giving examples of that. We don't think there's anything wrong with it, but if God makes people culpable because they're an Adam and they're dead sinners, well, that's bad. One guy that I know was always debating me about it. I sent him all those verses. It's three, it's like six pages all printed out. On PDF I have it. I sent it to him. Look at all these verses and come back to me and tell me what you learned from them. And you know what was interesting? God bless that brother. He said, the one that stood out to me was this one. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. That, that's uh, free as a noun. And he said, I, I read all these verses. You look in John, John 8. He said, you know, freedom comes from the Holy Spirit. You're not free first, so therefore you get the Holy Spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And so then the only thing for us to concern ourselves with is means. How is it that the Holy Spirit will come to somebody? And I believe that Luther was right. The Holy Spirit comes to us through the word. And so I tell pastors that's on our mailing list, preach the word of God. What will the Holy Spirit do when he comes? He'll convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And there are times we're reading in the book of Acts. I want us to learn Acts. People are smitten to their heart. You probably were at some point or you wouldn't be here. You may say, Amen. Were you ever smitten to your heart? And say, Oh my. <laughs> well, the Holy Spirit, Luther had it right. The Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word, Luther said, not through the Pope or the priest burning incense and speaking in Latin and saying all this stuff you know, and doing all these things. No, the Holy Spirit comes to us through the word. You want the Holy Spirit to convict people? Preach the word. Christy. Um, this just goes back to the questions that they were asking, and it felt like it reinforced your idea of compatibilism from Genesis chapter fifty. Um, with Joseph and his brothers and Joseph saying, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So yeah. just another example of That's a that very happening. good reading. I see you're drinking water, but the coffee's for you today. It's an astute reading. Uh, the, exactly. Joseph had a right. By the way, here's something we can learn right there from what Christy just Cited. Some people say, well, that's just narrative. Meaning it's a story. Yeah, Joseph said that, but it doesn't tell us whether what he said was right or wrong. Now, it's interesting. One of the things that 
uh, in my God blessing me to have great teachers at the time when I got to seminary, like, unlike when Eric got there. I guess in some ways it pains to be old. I got there in time. I had teachers that taught how to interpret narrative. We believe the author, in the case of Genesis, Moses, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The author, and the same is true for interpreting Luke, the author is implicitly or explicitly telling us that what was said is either good or bad. It isn't just like a recording of here's the tape of the what happened. We can watch it. So Moses, in writing Genesis, if you read the entire narrative of Joseph being rejected, being sold into slavery, being lied about by Potiphar's wife, being put into prison, being forgotten by one of the guys that he helped get out of there, finally being rescued and then reunited with his family through a lot of tears and drama, getting to this, and now they realize what God did. He said, don't be angry with you. You meant it for evil, which is obvious, but God meant it for good. The narrator, Moses, wants us to know that this is what is right. It isn't just what Joseph said. It's revealing to us God's intent and purpose. Do you see that? The narrator is putting his imprimatur on Joseph's words. We know that from the context. Amen. And throughout these, we're seeing these two aspects of God's will. We're seeing that Joseph's brothers violated God's moral will. They're willing to murder their brother. But all the while, they're fulfilling his decreative will, that which he brings about. And that's what we're seeing throughout. So God really does have a decreative will. He really will bring that about. But woe to the man who does evil, who sometimes brings about these evil things, like the crucifixion of Christ. That was God's foreordained plan. It was decreed. But those who crucified Christ were morally culpable. And so you do see those two aspects of God's will. That's compatibilism. It's exactly right. Yeah, so... We can understand these things. It's not wrong to use valid categories to help the church understand the Bible. That's a valid category. The moral will and the decretive will. God decreed the Messiah be crucified, which is an offense. It needs to be that offenses come. But woe to the one through whom it comes. Okay? Judas did what he did. Still morally wrong. I'm gonna first. I'm gonna do a verse, and I'm gonna go to you, Brian. Uh, Luke 22. Well, let me read Luke 17:25. I just ran the Greek word "day," which is "must," used by Luke for the divine necessity. Let's look at some more. Luke 17:25. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. I wrote an article about this generation. It's a moral category, not a chronological category. And it was Jews and their leadership who had the moral culpability of rejecting Messiah. That will not be rectified until the end of Daniel's 70th week. 
Luke 22, 37. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, quote, and he was numbered with the transgressors, unquote, within a quote, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Luke 22, 37. He was numbered with the transgressors. Barabbas released two criminals crucified with him prophesied in the Old Testament you can't read Hebrews without seeing this numbered with the transgressors order of Melchizedek sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies footstool for thy feet uh, over and over and over again scriptures fulfilled scriptures fulfilled scriptures fulfilled it must be fulfilled and on the scene of history, many intrigues are going on. And you and I are participating. We're the proclaimers of the gospel. We're ones being built together into the one new man. And we're proclaiming the terms to come to Messiah. And I thank God that there's no copy of the Lamb's Book of Life available. Brian, did you get to say what you wanted? Well, I, I just I wanted to say one more thing on free will. If you take free will to its extreme, you end up with Romans 1 and nothing but bad things happen. So without the filter of the Holy Spirit, uh, yeah, we, we well, don't want... Well, if you just look at America today, every day on the news I hear another perversion. But God has chosen that history goes on and we don't know who God's going to save but by the grace of God there go I we need to have a tender heart not be angry but neither should we compromise does that make sense we're going to have to live with a lot of stuff that's really bad we don't have to like it we don't have to agree with it we don't have to endorse it but we do have to offer forgiveness of sins through the blood atonement because we don't know the future. Does that make sense? So the doctrine of God's purpose and divine necessity doesn't mean that it doesn't grieve us to see God's moral law transgress so egregiously. And you know what Isaiah says, what are those who call good, evil, and evil, good? That really does describe America in 2019. Good is evil and evil is good. We hear that and they're so vocal. This has to happen. This has to happen. This has to happen. And everything they're talking about. Abortion right up to the point of birth or even after birth. That's good, they say. Ask yourself, is that good or is it evil? I have here, I, I, sometime i got to bring Justin Martin to Tully into class and read how they railed against that in, the, in the, like 135 to 200 A.D. The Romans, babies were born, they'd throw them out on the rock. They called it exposing infants. The Romans did this. The early Christian apologists railed against the Romans for doing this and used that to indict them for the evil they were doing. 
And one of them, I think it was Tertullian, said, they put the baby out. If somebody wants a baby, they can come and pick one up. But the slave traders, the people that would put the, raise the children to put them out to prostitution, the, the child traffickers, as we call them nowadays, they could take whatever baby they wanted. If they don't want them, they laid out there and died. That's the Romans in the first, second century. The Christians rebuked it. And so I think we ought to rebuke it. But not realizing that some may repent and come to Christ and realize the value of human life, that human beings are created in the image of God. Lately, I've been telling people that it really boils down to, I like what Peter Jones says, one-ism or two-ism. Two-ism said there's a transcendent God who has spoken. Two-ism, Peter Jones's categories, and I, I agree with this, History, as we know it, begins with creation and ends with judgment. Now, there's complexities. The process of judgment is a process, not just one day. But it's linear. Creation, judgment. Now, there's, again, details. You have the Old Covenant, the, the patriarchs, the period up to, the, to Noah, the church age, all of that, but it's still linear. It's going somewhere. It's heading toward judgment. There's a transcendent God who created the world out of nothing who will ultimately judge the world in righteousness through a man he's appointed whom he raised from the dead. That was the, what was preached in Acts. The world is saying no one-ism. God is infused into the creation. What is is right in the sense that it's evolving into paradise on earth without judgment. That's what my book was about. We were on the radio talking about this. And according to one-ism, Buddhism, Hinduism, panentheism, emergent, progressivism, Hegelianism, Marxism, you name it, there's no transcendent God who has spoken and given us moral law. Morals come from nature. Now, we know from Romans 1, morals don't come from nature. But they're saying, and I cited this on the radio when Eric and I were out at the studio, KKMS, they're saying anything that resists the process of moral and spiritual evolution is sin. And the greatest sinners, therefore, are the Jews and the Christians. Why? I've said this in sermons. Because of two mountains. So I want to make it easy. So I love what Peter Jones did. Makes it easy. One-ism versus two-ism. Let me tell you about two mountains. Two mountains that give us a Christian worldview, or Judeo-Christian worldview. The first one is Sinai. Because God not only created he came and he spoke true moral law to man. God came down to Sinai and spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. Moses gave us Genesis. So we got the creation account. Moses and the prophets. Moses said that God would raise up in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen. He said God will raise up a prophet like me when he does listen to him. 
for 400 years from Malachi to John the Baptist. There was no such prophet, and they knew it. John the Baptist comes as a forerunner, Messiah, born of a virgin, sinless, the sinless one. He chose his disciples, and he goes up on a mountain. Probably Mount Hermon, but we can't prove that. But I just call it Mount of Transfiguration. Two mountains, Sinai, Transfiguration. When he's up there, God speaks like he did on Sinai. This time Moses and Elijah up there, Moses and the prophets, they, they stood for those. They disappear, and here's the glorified son. And the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Those two mountains tell us that morals don't come from nature. There is no evolution into paradise on earth without judgment. That's a lie. It's the very lie that Satan told Eve in the garden. You surely shall not die. You're going to get something good. You're going to evolve into a better situation. Hegel said that Adam fell up. It was good. There's the lie. So, dear ones, we either have transcendence, the creator who spoke, has spoken, who gives us true moral law, and the created, the creature, and we as humans, creating God's image, are called to believe the truth. We're not asking anyone to believe something that's a fairy tale. No cleverly devised tales. We're asking you and everyone who hears us to believe cold, sober truth. Jesus was raised. and That proves that there will be future judgment. And every time we turn on the news, somebody is promoting one-ism. No Sinai. So the Jews are evil. Why do they hate the Jews? Because of Moses. Because it reminds Satan that God did speak. Why do they hate evangelical Christians? Because of transfiguration. God spoke through Messiah. You're going to be hated. I'm hated. But are we going to believe that and preach it? Or are we going to cave in to the moral and spiritual degradation that comes when humans worship nature? That's what's before us. So that's what we're learning. Let's, let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, help us to be wise in our generation and to understand what's at stake and be like these apostles who boldly proclaim the resurrection of our dear Savior. And may the church hear and understand the reality of what you've said and why it's so profound and significant and give us courage to not cave in or compromise but stand boldly for the truth thank you for the dear saints and thank you that we have fellowship with each other and we do say even so come quickly lord jesus we pray in your holy name amen